First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Father, we thank you so much for this high privilege of worshipping you. We thank you for the wonder of remembering your death, Lord Jesus, breaking bread. We thank you for the prospect of beholding you face to face. We thank you, Lord God, for the joy of having believers sitting around us and the certainties that captivate our lives. And Lord, we ask you right now, according to your wonderful promise, that you'll give the Holy Spirit to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, come right now. Be our teacher. We acknowledge the reality of your presence. We acknowledge our total dependence upon you. We celebrate the wonder of your ability to open our eyes and speak right into our hearts. So we depend on you. We anticipate you. We pray for your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I'm speaking to you in the few weeks that I have, just one or two Sundays here and there, I'm going to be taking a series looking at Elijah. And uh, he is probably one of the Bible's most famous prophets. You might say, well, what, what is a prophet? We sometimes hear the word prophet used and often used in our modern culture, and often describing somebody who has extraordinary insight, maybe a great student of history, uh, perhaps someone like a Winston Churchill, who was regarded as somewhat prophetic. He, he saw things coming. He watched the signs. He could see development. And uh, he spoke, and he held his ground. We might think of someone like Nelson Mandela, or maybe Martin Luther King, somebody of weight, someone whose word really counted. In fact, some of the characteristics of such people would be that they kind of saw into the future. When others weren't seeing what was going to happen, they saw. Uh, they spoke with authority. When Winston Churchill spoke, there was a growing sense of authority. People who began by mocking him, laughing at his concerns, began to swing around and uh, the authority began to be expressed. They stood courageously against mockery very often and then they were ultimately vindicated. This is one of the marks of these kind of people. We regard them as being prophetic. They had a voice. They were extraordinary men. Now, usually such guys were the product of a sense of history, uh, reading well, observ observation, and then coming through with passions and concerns that came out of their own uh, makeup, really, their own personality and ability. Now, in a sense, that's like the prophet, but in a way, that word prophet has been borrowed from the Bible. It's a Bible word. It's not really just a political word. It's stolen or borrowed uh, from the Bible. And the Bible has characters that are genuinely called prophets, and they have those same characteristics. They, they speak uh, knowing the future, they speak uh, with authority, they speak with courage, and usually they speak with wonderful vindication at the end. Those are some of the characters uh, of the Bible. And we can say about them, they were prophets, but there's a distinctive. 
Bible prophets were not simply uh, intelligent people who perceived things. They were people who were called by God. Very often, uh, very reluctantly, you'll find as God begins to approach someone like Moses and begins to call him to be a prophet, uh, Moses expresses serious reluctance. You'll find Jeremiah is saying, no, 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 not me, I'm too young, don't call me. Uh, you'll find that Amos was a farmer and God said, took him from farming and said, you're going to be my mouthpiece. And so prophets in the Bible are not simply clever observers. They don't write articles in the Sunday Times and say, this is how I see it. Uh, They're guys who knew that God had apprehended them. And as I say, sometimes reluctantly, Jeremiah said, I'm not going to speak anymore. Every time I speak, I get into trouble. And there's that sense of, no, no, you're a mouthpiece. In fact, God's own definition of a prophet is found in Exodus 4, when Moses says, I can't even speak. I don't know how to speak. And at that season, God says, well, look, you get Aaron, he can speak, he's eloquent, and you tell him what to say. He says, you can be as God to Aaron, and he can be your prophet. So, he can be your mouth. He speaks for you. And that's God's definition of a Bible prophet, expressly stated in the Bible. So, a prophet, then, is someone who speaks from God in Bible terms. Someone, yes, with those characteristics of courage, insight, standing against the tide. Yeah, those qualities are there, but this added ingredient that God was behind them. And it was God, actually, who was speaking. We need to understand that when we come to a verse like 17.1 in 1 Kings, because, well, it's suddenly now Elijah. What's all that about? Well, we need to understand Elijah was a prophet. He was God's spokesman. Another thing we need to remember about Old Testament prophets is that they had a special relationship with Israel, the nation, and almost exclusively prophesied to that particular nation. There were exceptions, but almost exclusively they had the special relationship with Israel, not watching international developments, not saying, well, I wonder what's happening in Russia now. Look at China emerging. I wonder what will come out of the Middle East. Then there's the oil crisis. And uh, No, no, it wasn't so much a broad view, but this nation, this nation in particular, were the nation that they addressed. They were God's special nation. And at this period in history, God had specially called them. He interrupted the life of an ordinary pagan called Abraham, and, or at least called Abraham, and God renamed him Abraham, and said to this man, you are going to be globally significant. You're going to have a role in world history that will reach all the families of the earth. Not just you, the individual, but your descendants. So we read about Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his 12 sons, how they became a big family of 70, went down to Egypt, became something like 2 million. And this nation, this particular nation that our Old Testament is filled with is God's special community. He made a special relationship with them. They were having a particular function with God's eye on the end of the world, but they being his special Instrument, And in that relationship, it wasn't just a function, but God had a real tender love for them. He said, I've chosen you from among all the families of the earth. He said, you will be my special treasure. In fact, when they came out of Egypt under Moses, 
the word Moses had for Pharaoh was, let my people go, let my son go. And then later God reflected, he said, out of Egypt I called my son. This is a very special relationship. It's not just a function, not just a task, not just broadcasting a message. This is my, my son. This is a very special people. And later on in the Psalms it says, as God, or at least in the prophets, God says reflectively, when they were small I taught them how to walk. I carried burdens for them. It's so tender and beautiful. Not only son, but actually he calls himself betrothed. Almost as Israel was somehow the wife of God. So it's extremely intimate and talking about a relationship of loving, overshadowing, caring commitment. This was who Israel were. They were betrothed to God. And yet it's a strange thing that when God betrothed himself to them, especially happened at Mount Sinai when two million people gathered at the mountain and God spoke. First of all, they all heard. Two million people heard the voice of God. So the trumpet sounded louder and louder. Imagine, 2,000 people standing on the planet hearing the Creator speak to them. Hearing that sound, not just the waves breaking, not just the bird on the wing, the very voice of God. And then they said, well, you know, Moses, you go and speak to him. They were terrified. And, and, and Moses became the kind of in the go-between. He was the mediator. He went up and spoke to God. But this is what God said to Moses as he came down again from the mountain with what became known as the Ten Commandments. God said, right, we are now in relationship. I have brought you out of Egypt. We are now in relationship. I am your God. You are my people. And this is the deal. And he began to spell out the deal. And he started it, and it's repeated again in Exodus 34, when Moses went again, because they broke these Ten Commandments so quickly. He came again uh, down with the commandments. And God said this in Exodus 34, 14, You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, this was unique in that generation because people had many gods. And that carried on for centuries in other cultures. They would have many gods. They would have a god for this and a god for that. A god for different aspects of life, different geographical areas. But he said, no, the Lord is one god. And he's a jealous god. So this cut through the norm and the preference and the experience and the little superstitious gods and idols that people had. And he said... My name is Jealous. That's a bit scary, isn't it, when someone says, my name is Jealous. Imagine one of you young ladies, you know, seeing a guy in the crowd here. You begin to think, hmm, nice guy. And uh, you hang around the coffee downstairs, and sure enough, up he comes. You think, wow, uh, hello, my name's Jane. Oh, really? My name's Jealous. (laughs) You think, oh, well, thank you very much. We tend to think jealousy is a pretty ugly characteristic. We associate jealousy uh, with things like suspicion, misunderstanding, distrust, irrational resentment. Now, jealousy is a pretty ugly thing. You see, God, God's never suspicious. God never misunderstands. He never reads the thing wrongly. He understands perfectly. So, in God, jealousy 
is pure love. When he says, I am a jealous God, my name is jealous. What he's saying is, I am a pure, I love you with a pure, pure love. Maybe it helps us if we think maybe of that great wedding day, you know, the wonderful day when you come to be married. And uh, this would be the contrast maybe that sheds light on it. You know, you walk to the front and there's lovely things happening, music's playing, and now it's the time for the vows. And uh, the bride looks up lovingly and her husband says, uh, yes, forsaking all others, I give myself exclusively to you. And the husband says, no, no, don't worry, dear. I'm happy to take my turn. You can have a few guys if you like. <laughs> and we don't expect that to happen, do we? We, we expect, uh, she might think, he doesn't love me after all. That's what it means. But it says, God says, I am a jealous God. Not because I've got hang-ups. Not because I misunderstand, I'm suspicious. What will you do? No, he's walking in perfect understanding and light. But he's saying, my love is a jealous love. A pure, pure jealous love. That's God's attitude to Israel. He loved them. They were his absolute delight, preoccupation. He had no desire to share them with anybody else. Or they to share their affection in any, with anyone other than himself. Now this is something of what was in the root of being a prophet. God raised up spokesmen and they specially spoke to this delightful people that were uniquely his. That's what they did. And you'll find again and again, they came from God to this special, delightful community that he saw as his own. He fed them, he cared for them, he watched over them, he protected them when others tried to prophesy against them even. Uh, people who prophesied for money and had a bit of a skill of putting on a curse or something of that sort, they found they couldn't do it. So a man called Balaam tries to curse them and he can't do it. He, he starts blessing them. He says, they're wonderful. I can see no fault in them. There's beauty upon them. There's power in them. Who can withstand them? You think, wow. How did he do that? Well, actually, this defending father, husband, was making it so that even the prophecies track changed and it became a blessing. This is the delight of God. That's the background. So now, to come up to our story. The background to our story. In King David's day, the worship of this people was beautiful. David himself, utterly devoted to God, once singing alone, now leading the choirs, giving the choirs their songs, teaching them, even as we're so blessed as a people. I was so wanting us to sing, you are an amazing God this morning. Some of our people and Nathan and Lou give us great songs to sing that you can think, yes, Lord, you are breathtakingly wonderful. And David had led a whole nation into that kind of worship. During David's day, they knew their identity. We're gods. We belong to him. He's our God. We're exclusively his. We live in Zion. What's Zion? What's the joy of the whole earth? Well, who is this God? Well, he created everything, actually. We may think of him as Israel's God, but David taught them to sing, no, he's the Lord of all the nations. One day all the nations will come. He just put song after song after song in their lips as he inspired in the presence of God, taught these people who they were, and got them singing their love songs to God, built a great temple, at least his, his son Solomon, whom David provided, 
provided millions of pounds equivalent towards that temple being built. And in it would be the songs of Zion as they knew we are God's people on God's earth, enjoying God's favour. It says their fame went everywhere. People came from far distance, like the Queen of Sheba. Let's see this breathtaking sight, the wisdom, the glory, the riches, the blessing. This is who these people are. They belong to God. They're amazing in their relationship with God. They celebrated their identity. They celebrated his purpose in us. They were so excited about what God meant to them and their role in his purpose. But between Solomon's reign and the day we just read, there were 58 years, only 58 years, we can think back to the Queen's coronation a similar period of time ago, 1953. Just 58 years. In seven kings replaced one after the other at that period. And tragically, each one was worse than the one before. Each one began to compromise. Even in Solomon's Sons, they began to be compromised. They began to go after other gods. They began to separate. And then one, god, one king replaced another, replaced another, replaced another, until we come to Ahab, who is the man that Elijah confronted. It says in verse 1, as we read it together, Elijah, who was the settlers of Gilead, spoke to Ahab. Who's Ahab? Ahab is now the one who has taken David's place. This one who led Israel's worship who understood God, man after God's heart, one after another has replaced him till we come to Ahab. Now things have drastically and dramatically changed. Gradually at first, as one replaced another, but in Ahab's day, blatant. He made Baal worship the national religion. He had changed the national religion. They were no longer worshipping the God that we read of in the Old Testament, whose name was Yahweh, sometimes called Jehovah. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They weren't worshipping him anymore. Now the national worship was of Baal. He'd almost destroyed Israel's faith in God. Almost destroyed. There were very few left who acknowledged that God at all. And remember this, what did God say to Abraham? God said this to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is my nation to bless every family, every nation, Brazil and Mexico and Russia and China. Ultimately, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And now we're down to 7,000 actually, as we'll see as we come back to these stories later. He had virtually abolished devotion to God. That was the condition, that was the situation. He had made Baal worship the national worship. They had lost their way, they had lost their identity, they had lost their reason for existence. They were no longer fulfilling why God put them on the planet. They are being called to be God's blessing to the whole world. It was distorted. It was gone. Now, you might say, well, why is this of interest to us, 21st century Christians, a lovely sunny morning in Brighton? Uh, what's this got to do with us? 
Why is this story relevant to 21st century people? Well, it's important for us to understand that religion isn't about a kind of psychological view of life. It's not even about just moral rules and regulations. It's not about just trying to be good. Religion has to do with the living God. It's not just a matter of conduct, or some people are religious and some are not. I don't really go in for it myself. No, no, this is a a book about God and his relationship with people and how he's dealt with people, historical people, people who lived on this planet, Jewish nation who are there still. This people that God had a relationship with in solid, special history. It teaches us about a personal God who acts in society in response to people. Not just a kind of figment of our imagination, not just a, a kind of a list of values that we projected up into the sky and call it God. A God of history, a God who deals, God who acts, God who, who expresses love and kindness, feels a, a response to people's sin, acts in response to that, sends prophets, speaks, speaks to the world through prophets whom he raises up, famous Historical figures like Moses and Elijah, whom everybody knows of. These historical figures got us spoken to real life situations. And so this is how we're to understand our Bibles. This is why it's relevant to us. You see, God is actually, although in Old Testament terms we see him modeling a relationship with Israel, who have by now lost their way, lost their sense of identity. Actually, he's the creator of the whole world. He's been reminding us in the meeting this morning how he created everything. How we can see him in in the creation. We can see him as we heard through the the crashing of the waves, the turning of the colours in autumn. We can see him in the beauty, the majesty, the magnificence of his creation. And that is for all of us, not just for one little nation, but for all of us. And in that sense, God is not only the God of Israel, though he worked out some special history with them, But he's actually our God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the Bible is an amazing book. It speaks to us in our generation. It takes these old stories and says, this is relevant to you now, in your generation, because today people are thinking, what's what's going on? Who are we on the planet? What's life about? Those sort of questions are out there. Have Have we lost our way? And so we're going to find this is an interesting reality. This affects us too. The story of Israel was such that they had forgotten their unique relationship with God. They'd forgotten it. They'd turned their back on it. One of the thoughts was this. Well, when God took us through the wilderness, yeah, he was a wonderful God. He provided and he led us through desert conditions. He fed us. He provided manna and water, a pillar of glory to follow. He was with us all the time. But, but now we're in this land. Well, they've got all kinds of gods here. Not only that, they've got gods of cultivation. We never cultivated anything in the desert. We just had the manna just supplied. Now, I mean, we, this is a new world. I mean, the old things, well, this, this, we need to know, how does this work? And they've got gods here who make this work. There's Baal, he, he's, he's the god of fertility and of the, of the rain and the, and the fertile soil. This is a fertile land, it's not like a desert. Okay, God looked after us in the old days through the desert, but now this is a land of, 
of, of fertility, of, of harvest, of seasons. We don't know anything about that. We've never lived that. We need to engage with this God. And so they forgot this, this unique husband-wife relationship. And as you listen to prophet after prophet in the Old Testament, you begin to hear God's agony creeping through. God's agony being expressed. My bride, my bride, you're giving yourself to other husbands. That's how God saw these other gods. They forgot their purpose on the earth. They were there to be God's voice to the nations. They were meant to be a kind of a sign and a wonder, as they were in David's day, when the Queen of Sheba and others came and said, wow, what is it with her? What people has a God as close as this? And what holy laws? They were meant to be a demonstration. Now, no, no, now they're a compromising people. They've forgotten their purpose. They're beginning to get bewildered, baffled. What are we supposed to do? They began to turn to futile things like the Baals, as they were called, the gods of that land. And finally, they became ripe for serious judgment from God. That was the problem. They forgot who they were. They'd forgotten what we're on the planet for. We'd understand. They forgot their true identity. They didn't want to live the Ten Commandments. God said, look, you're my special ones. Here are my rules to live by. And he gave them the Ten Commandments, but they didn't want to keep the Ten Commandments. They didn't want to keep the Sabbath. They didn't want to be kind to the poor. They wanted to be like other people. They wanted to follow the way other people were. They wanted to change their ways. They didn't want this unique relationship. They didn't value the special relationship they had. And in fact... Once that special relationship faded into the background of their understanding, they became like anybody else, bewildered and lost. Now, the Bible teaches that what was true for Israel is like a concentrated image of what's true for the whole of the world. Let me read what Paul says in Romans 1. Even though, speaking of us being made in the image of God, being made with a conscience, being made with a capacity to know, discern, worship God. Paul says in Romans 1, 21, even though they knew God, they didn't honour him as God. That became futile in their speculations or their reasonings. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's... Paul's appreciation of the world. He says, no, you knew better than this. There was a day when you understood who God was, but you've forgotten your uniqueness, that you're made in the image and likeness of God. You've forgotten your identity. You've forgotten your calling. You've forgotten who you are, so you've become bewildered. Not only become bewildered, but gone after strange things. Now, Paul says that's the history of, of the human race. It's also true, you can sometimes see in, in phases and seasons uh, in a nation, like in Israel, even in the UK. If you think back to the 50s and the post-war era, immediately churches were filled. Many would have called themselves Christian. Many would have held to Christian culture and standards, though may not all have been devoted, yet that was the culture. But then you look at the 60s, you look at this, you look at this, and look at this. Now, to be a Christian is very strange indeed. It's the minority. In the Bible, it took 58 years to come from David to Ahab. Now we find this extraordinary distortion. 
values. You think, oh, how can they be doing that? They changed the law again. Now they're doing this. How can we have more prisons? We need more prisons for more people. But let's tolerate. Let's get them out of prison. Then they do it again. What are they going to do? What, what's happening to our society? What should we do? We're lost. How can I get on with all these headlines in the newspapers? It used not to be like this. What's happened to us? That's the kind of cry that was there, and that's the kind of cry that comes from time to time, not only the big history of the world, but in local seasons from time to time. That is what happens. Forgetting God. We don't understand who we are. Nietzsche said, God is dead. Now there's death in the city. If God is dead, who are we? That's the huge question that comes. Forgetting God, not relating to him, not thanking or honoring him, Paul says. They became futile in their way. Richard Dawkins, the famous professor at Oxford with his top-selling, the God delusion, number one in the, sale, in the Times and other places, booksellers for many months. He says this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. That's now what a modern professor from Oxford would say, and that, that's his view. There is no evil. There is no good. We're just the product of a kind of chance event. There is no significance. We, and so it doesn't matter. It's just a, you just dance to your DNA. That's his expression. And yet there's something in our hearts when we, we see the newspaper and we hear news and we, we listen to the radio and the television news. And this last couple of weeks ago, I hear this guy up in court because a woman fell and bashed her head on the curbstone. And as she's dying there, he urinated over her. And she, as she died, and people looked on. That was on the news this last couple of weeks. You don't find many people walking down the street saying, oh, he's dancing to his DNA. It's just the way he is, just the way it turned out. You see, that, that argument of Dawkins, well, there is no evil. We just dance to our DNA. Think of Hitler. Six million Jews. Oh, it's not evil. He's just dancing to his DNA. He's just being who he is. There's no good or bad. There's no reason. There's no, there's no way you should sum it up. It's just the way we are. We just happened. It was just suddenly burst and we evolved. And there's no God. There's no reason. There's no purpose. There's no value. There's no evil. There's no good. When you do that, people don't know who they are. But something in us, dear friends... When we hear a horrific story like someone urinating on a woman dying because she struck her head as she fell, you don't in your hearts, you don't echo that. You don't say, oh yeah, he's just dancing to his DNA. No, in your heart you think, that is horrific. In your heart you say, that will never do, that is wrong. What do I mean wrong? Well, I don't know what I mean anymore, but it's wrong. Right, Hitler doing that, it was wrong. What do you mean wrong? We just do what we like. We just, we just existed. We just came to, there's no God. We just evolved. Anything will do. No, no, something inside you says, it's terrible, it's wrong, it should never happen. Why does that rise up? Why, does, why, does it, why don't we stroll by? Why don't we say, oh, it's just his DNA? Because something deep inside us, dear friends, 
knows there's more to life than this. Just as in Ahab's day, 58 years on from when David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord's my shepherd. We are his people. Zion is dwelling place. They knew who they were. Now, they don't know anymore who they are. They don't know. Because they don't know God, so they don't know who they are. They're in a terrible, terrible condition. And tragically, we live in such a day. And that's where the Bible is so wonderfully relevant to us. When a man and his culture turn from relationship with God, he loses his identity and meaning. But something inside screams out, I was born for better than this. I have a conscience. I say, no, that's, that should never happen. Who says it should never Well, I know it should never happen. God has made us in his image and likeness. And that's the context that we come to chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah. Now, Elijah. Elijah stepped into that kind of world. It's not just turn the page and now, Elijah. We don't have time to read all the stories that go between David and Ahab, but they're horrible stories. They're stories of people who compromise. First of all, they just compromise. Sometimes they say, we'll have this God and our God. And we'll, have, we'll do some of this and some of this. And it just gradually slides away from having a value system. Knowing, no, that's how I want to live. I remember reading a man's testimony and he said, the first time he ever seduced a woman and had intercourse with her, he went home and wept afterwards. As he just went to bed alone afterwards, but he said, I never wept again. You just gradually take on board the value system. At first, you think, what have I done? And then you think, no, no, everyone's doing it. And gradually, it's in this 58-year culture, gradually, you know what? That way, well, you can't do that. People never, no, no, it's done now. But a movie on live on television? No, no, it's touched there, and that's part. Oh, I see that. So it just changes, changes, changes. And you get born at a certain time, and it's all changed. And by the time it reaches you, you think, oh, this is okay then. Because the culture is so transformed, you think it's okay then. Well, everybody's doing it. But something inside you thinks, is that it then? And into that context, Elijah comes. He confronts his people. What does he do? What does a prophet do? Elijah, the prophet, what does he do? Well, he spoke to the culture and he confronted them with reality. He came to them. He spoke as one, he said, who stood. He said, I stand in the presence of God. That's the calling. That's our calling. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's why it's so great when we come and worship. All the stuff that's bombarding our minds, television, everyone's speaking to us on a daily basis. We come here and we start to worship. You come to a prayer meeting, you start to focus on God alone. God's values, God's word, God's spirit speaking to us, God reading, people reading scripture, reminding us, who is God? Standing before God. If we don't stand before God, beloved, the church ceases to be anything like prophetic. It begins to think, how can I engage? How can I look like? How can I be alongside? How can I, no, no, Paul, this man says, no, I, I'm so impressed by being, in the, he's an apprehended man. As I said at the beginning, he's not just a politician who's rather good at seeing into the future. He's apprehended. This is who he is. As it happens, the whole nation should have been standing there. 
This whole people should have been standing in the presence of God. That was their identity. They were God's people. They were the light of the world, and the light had nearly gone out. The hopes of the nations are on this people, and they're nearly destroyed. They're totally corrupt. The light of the world, corrupt. God had some very harsh things to say. If you read through Isaiah, he said, I took you as a choice vine. It's like cleared ground for you. I took you out of Egypt. I planted. I, I, I cleared the way. I put a building around you. I, I put a safety. He said, and I came to find grapes. What I find? Grapes that stink. You find God's heartbreak that this people who are supposed to be the light began to be the darkness. This is not just a season. This is God's answer to world history of people who are corrupted. And he came saying, I stand before God. Ahab, you're the king. You're in succession to David. You're the one who should be standing before God. You reign as God's representative. You have no other claim. You haven't been democratically selected. You've come from that line. You should be representing the people before God like David, your forefather, did. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand. He came as one who had stood before God. Dear friends, let's be like that. Let's let that characterize our evaluation of things. Don't stand too long in front of the television, lest you should begin to adopt and adapt. That's not saying don't have a television, that's up to you. But don't let this world shape you. We will cease to be prophetic. He came as one who was standing in the presence of God. He did not reflect the culture. He came in contrast to the culture. He reminded them of their true roots. He said, the God of Israel before whom I stand. This historical God, this actual historical God. Not this, I, this thing I've made at home that I polish up from time to time. I, I call it God. No, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, our authentic God, our historical God, the one we used to be at home with. I stand before this authentic God who, although only a handful still kneel to him, he is still running the universe. Still ruling, still governing, still holding the stars in space. Full of power and glory and majesty, just as glorious as he was in David's day. That God. I stand before. I stand before the God of Israel, the personal God of covenant commitment, not a vague concept, an authentic God who lives. Elijah seemed to come like a foreigner. He was foreign to the culture. He was out of step with society. Totally out of step. That was where he came from. They'd become followers of Baal. With their following of Baal, their worship, well, it was about fertility. And so their temples had temple prostitutes. And part of their worship was the sex act. as part of worship. as part of devotion. They become a nation devoted to sexual activity, somehow to inspire the god of fertility who would give us a fertile land. And so their world had been totally distorted and made very ugly in the name of worship. Another thing that was required was that they would devote and give their little babies. Many babies were offered up to this God. 
So idols were created with arms extended, with fire, and little babies that women had given birth to were dropped into. This is part of the worship that was required. It's part of the culture that was beginning to captivate, and indeed had captivated, the nation. He came from God. He came from the God who said, my name is jealous. This is who I am. I'm a jealous, jealous God. I'm not indifferent. I'm not, I'll have my go. Right, I'll stand in line. In the book of Ezekiel, sometimes we love to read that early part, Ezekiel 16, first section, how God found Israel. How he found them like a little girl in her blood. He said, I cleansed you, I covered you, I washed you. I saw you become mature. I gave you beautiful garments. We can see it almost like a picture of the church. We love that first dozen or so verses. Yesterday I read the rest of the chapter and I read it in the message. A message translation. Eugene Peterson's translation. I just say to you, if you want to catch the mood of God, read Ezekiel 16 from the message. See what God says. He says, you took those beautiful things I made you and you turned them into beautiful robes. You turned them into the sheets of a prostitute. You became a prostitute. He talks them in such passionate ways. He said, you turned my house into a whorehouse. That's how God feels. So when God is speaking, he's not speaking with harshness as much as jealousy and heartbreak. God so loved this people. He loved them. And so he's feeling things deeply. I am jealous. My name is jealous. And so he begins to speak. And against this fertility God, who if you honor him, worship him, he'll give you the rains, he'll give you the crops, he'll give you success in the countryside. That was his claim. Elijah says, it won't rain till I say so. And the authority of God comes cutting through the nonsense and says, it won't rain. Does this remind him? Yeah, he does have all creation in his hands. He is the authentic God. It won't rain. God's stepping in. God's beginning to speak. God's beginning to act. God's beginning to make his heart known to the people. But I want to remind you as we uh, begin to draw to a close here, Elijah doesn't say this will happen to you, but like some newsreader, I'll just be here at my desk tomorrow on television news and tell you the next thing that's happening. No, I'm in this. Elijah's saying, it won't rain. And he's going to be alive the next day and the next day and going to be in that nation. He's going to be part of it. Like our dear friends in Zimbabwe, where Wendy and I were a few weeks ago, as, as horror hits the nation. And where's the food? There's no food, on the, there's no food on the shelves. Have you been? No, there's nothing there. Can we have some milk? There isn't any milk. When you turn the power, there isn't any power. And what's going to happen to the hospital soon when this power... And, and You see, it's not a prophet. It won't rain. I'll be in touch. No, no, no. He's there. You know, it's not tomorrow and tonight's news is. No, it's, I'm part of this. Elijah is a true prophet. He's right into the results of his prophesying. He is in the nation. He's prepared. He cares so much for his nation. Actually, we'll read later that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. 
It said, in Deuteronomy, God had said to them, if you go from me, I'll stop the rain. I want you to... I, it started by saying, I'll bless you, I'll bless you in the field. I'll give you crops, I'll give you fruit. A land of milk and honey. That was his desire. But being a jealous God, he said, but if you turn from me, actually I'll stop the rain. And this prophet, he said, Lord, stop the rain. Boy, you care a lot when you pray that. I was so impressed with our churches in Zimbabwe. As they're living through it and trying to shine for Jesus. And they're living through it. And they're preaching, and I heard some of them preach. What are you preaching? God, get us through this? Are you preaching, God, fulfill what you want to fulfill here? Not Elijah went through it. I wonder if any of us would say, oh God, in order to shake this nation, in order, Lord, to shake all things so that what cannot be shaken remains, please give international oil problems. Please make it almost impossible to get gasoline or petrol Please do this. Please do this. That's the kind of prayer Elijah prayed. Their lifestyle depended on rain. Rain was the answer. You can't live without rain. We might say, well, you would actually pray that? God, that's a big call. But Elijah prayed, Lord, stop the rain and I'm part of it. And really, he's pointing forward to the true prophet. The true prophet. The one who came right down to us and stood alongside us and became God's prophet to us. You know, when Jesus was uh, talking to the disciples one day, he said to them, who do people say that I am? As his fame was growing and his ministry was developing, who, who, do, think people, who do they think I am? And Peter said, well, some say John the Baptist. Why? John the Baptist was called like Elijah. Then it says, some say Elijah. What? Some say Jesus. Who do you think he is? Elijah. But I thought Jesus was kind of a nice guy with a blonde hair and a dressing gown and went around saying, God bless you all. Love your neighbor. Now, they, they said, this one, he sounds like, he seems like Elijah. He seems like Elijah. Jesus said, the world hates me because I tell it its deeds are evil. Jesus came in that train, but listen, Jesus, like Elijah, didn't stand back from it. Jesus came right into it. Like Elijah is going to suffer the drought. Jesus didn't just shout from heaven. God didn't just shout from heaven. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who believes in him will not perish. He spoke through prophets before, but now he's spoken through a son. And not a son who says, well, this will happen. No, no, who steps right into it. Who steps right, and the mystery of godliness, that right from the beginning, when God said, if you do that, you will die. And understanding, when God said you will die, understanding the implications of that, ultimately, for the very Godhead. Not standing back saying this will happen to you, but realizing I will be involved in this. I will be involved in this. The second person of the Trinity, from the beginning, knowing, no, it's not just words. I will be involved. I will participate. Jesus then not just 
a prophet, not just announcing, but one who came not just to take alongside our suffering, our bewilderment, but take it for himself. We speak of Elijah, but my joy and privilege is to speak of Jesus. But now, this starts, now Elijah. I want to say to you today, as we close, now Jesus. Now Jesus, who, who wants to tell you, beloved, you were made for better than this. Who wants to tell you, it wasn't meant to be like this. You weren't meant to be so lost. You weren't meant to be so, well, what are we here for? We're just figments. We just happen. We're just the result of our DNA. There's neither evil nor good. We just muddle through life. He wants to say, no, you weren't made for that. In a few years, you can forget, you can forget, you can forget. Wendy and I went to the Tower of London. We saw the coronation on a big, big deal. 1953, the young queen taking this orb in her hand, representing the globe, and over it a cross, and saying, under the rule of Jesus Christ, I reign in this land. Words to that effect. It's under Christ. The whole thing's under Christ. And that honoring of God. 53. About the same length of time as from David to Ahab. God wants to say to us, beloved, you weren't made for this bewilderment. This, what's the way? What do I do with my body? What, what do I do in relationships? What I, what, what, do I kill this? Do I keep this alive? Do I, what's the point of life? Well, we just live. You can claim your rights. What are my rights? Well, what you want. What do I want? I don't know what I want anymore. I, oh, who am I? You're made in the image and likeness of God. That's who you are. Things, when I got saved, I'd never heard the gospel. I literally had never heard the gospel before. But when I came back, I remember so vividly, I felt, I've come home. Isn't that strange? I'd never been home before. I didn't know God. But the day I got saved, I thought, I've come home. It all make, and now it makes sense. It makes sense. There is a God. There's someone at home in the universe. I'm not just, I'm home with God. I'm only a baby. I don't know what it means. But I'm home. Elijah's going to say to this nation, come on back to who you're meant to be. If you're a believer, live like that. The world's waiting to see an Elijah-like church. Someone who works alongside them. You say, well, I stand before the Lord. The God of Israel, the true historical God. I'm living out my life before him. I'm, I'm, I'm raising my family. I'm, I'm living my life with my wife. I'm, I'm living before him. We don't have to be strange about it. It's just the way it is. People will notice your integrity, your lifestyle, the choices you make, your lack of gossip, your lack of flirting with women at work. They say, what is it with you? Oh, well, I'm living... I stand before God. And you can be salt and light. But if you don't know God yet, his heart reaches out to you this morning. He's saying, come home. Come home to me. You will remember who you really are. This is the Bible. This is, this is why the Bible is so relevant. 
It's not just about a mystical thing. It's not just about being good and moral, going to church. It's about knowing what we're here for. What is man? Who is God? I can know him. 